You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Welcome everyone here today for this event on reconciliation and justice in Rwanda. Lessons for creating ways to live together after violence. My name is Susan Stigant, and I lead USIP's programs in East Africa and the Greater Horn of Africa. This event is part of a series highlighting themes from Imagine, Reflections on Peace, a multimedia exhibit from USIP and the Seven Foundation that explores the challenges of building peace through an immersive look at societies that have suffered and survived violent conflict. You are invited to tour the exhibit if you're in Washington, D.C., Mondays, Thursdays, and Fridays through August 1st. Free tickets are available online. There is also a virtual tour for those of you who are joining us online at www.usip.org imagine. Almost 30 years ago, in the wake of horrific violence, it almost seemed unimaginable that Rwandans could chart a path out of violence and towards a common future. And for 30 years since then, individuals in their communities, governments, universities, and international partners have taken and continue to take steps towards that goal. This has included efforts towards justice and the Gachacha courts. It has included memorialization, reconciliation, trauma healing, and reform of curriculum, laws, and institutions. It has not been straightforward. It has not been without dilemmas or trade-offs. And this is the case in any context after mass violence and genocide. We won't do justice to a conversation about three decades of reconciliation in the time that we have today, but we will do our very best to draw forward reflections from our panelists about practical approaches and steps that will help to spark the imagination of other countries, other peace builders, and partners who are contemplating similar questions. Today, we are delighted to be joined by a really exemplary panel of experts, practitioners, researchers who have studied, written about, and walked these paths of reconciliation and justice in Rwanda. We have several of our colleagues who are joining us online. Dr. Phil Clark, who is a professor of international politics at SOAS University of London. I'm joined in person by Mr. Mike Jobbins, Vice President of Global Affairs and Partnerships at Search for Common Ground. We have Dr. Alice Karakezi, who is a professor at the Center for Conflict Management at the University of Rwanda. And Dr. Felix Ndehinda, who's an honorary associate professor at the College of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Rwanda. Welcome to all of you, and thank you for joining us. For those of you who are joining online today, we encourage you to follow in social media with the hashtag RwandaReconciliationUSIP. We will have an opportunity for questions and answers at the end, so please feel free to, to add your questions and comments as we go along the way. So let's get into the conversation with, with the time we have today. Each of you has led decades of research and advocacy and support to legal and judicial processes and peacebuilding activities. And I wonder if you can reflect a little bit on what stands out for you as some of the most important lessons and poignant lessons from Rwanda's experience in justice and reconciliation. Alice, um, I'd, I'd like to go to you to start us off, please. 
Thank you very much, Susan. Uh, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thank you for having me and uh, giving an opportunity to reflect on uh, those uh, uh, aspects that we have been uh, embedded in for so long. Um, perhaps one of the, the few things I would say on the top of my head now is, uh, first of all, the, 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 we have witnessed the importance of having something to refer to in own society, to build on, to expand on, and uh, try to have some remedies. With the advantage of being uh, having some familiarity with the society that is attempting to heal. The other thing, the other important thing that we have been, uh, um, we have witnessed is that the importance of community leaders in justice dispensation is uh, as a necessary condition to people's ownership. And um, another important thing, uh, to my opinion, is the place of justice and reconciliation. Most of the time we are dealing with, of course, a lot of suffering. And uh, in the case of uh, societies as Rwandas, uh, uh, we are dealing with um, violence that has been uh, uh, rooted in society. It means that, unlike, for example, uh, the, what you have seen in uh, places like, uh, uh, or situations like the Shoah, or, or where you have administrated uh, uh, or administrative violence, you have, uh, in the case of Rwanda and other societies, violence uh, between people who know each other intimately uh, sometimes. So uh, uh, it is very important that uh, justice come to the place where people live, where people have suffered and where people are still distressed. Um, perhaps uh, the last point that I would like to say uh, uh, now is reconciliation requires direct communities dialogue. Uh, it's one thing uh, uh, as one important factor. I would not say as the only thing, but a dialogue taking place within community at the place of suffering and with deep roots in the society we are uh, seeking justice and reconciliation in, uh, some of the key lessons I would say I've learned from uh, 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 those uh, near 30 years of uh, seeing and living uh, efforts at justice and reconciliation. Thanks, Alice. I I think we um, betray how complex the situation is with our title. We just put justice and reconciliation together like they're two words that automatically fit on a page. Um, but as you've said, there are some very complicated pieces that, that go along with that and advancing those two absolutely critical streams. Um, Phil, can I turn to you for, for your reflections on, on key lessons learned? Thanks, Susan. And uh, thanks to the US Institute uh, for Peace for the very kind invitation to be here. It's always a delight to be on a panel with my good friends, uh, Alice and Felix uh, in particular. Um, if I was to think of maybe the most uh, poignant lesson uh, that I would take away from the Rwandan experience of justice and reconciliation over the last 30 years, and I've been researching on these themes uh, for 20 of those years, it's that we've seen a marked 
Rwandan desire to pursue creative and contextual responses to the genocide against the Tutsi. That particularly through Gachacha, but not only Gachacha, as I'm sure we'll talk about here, uh, Rwanda went down a pathway that actually was opposed by many international actors. Uh, there was this real sense when Gachacha was being talked about as a community-based form of justice for genocide crimes. Um, you know, it really brought down on the Rwandan government's head a ton of bricks from international human rights groups, international lawyers, who said, you can't do this. Uh, you, you can't possibly use uh, lay judges sitting under trees in their village uh, to prosecute these very complicated genocide crimes. The response by the Rwandan government was, well, you tell us what else we're supposed to do. We've got hundreds of thousands of suspected perpetrators. We've got a society that's been torn apart. We've got very limited resources and very limited uh, remaining institutions with which to do justice. How else are we supposed to do this? So I think what really characterizes for me the Gachacha process, but the entire Rwandan recovery uh, since 1994 has been this desire to, to do things in a way that made sense to Rwandans and to the particular context that the country was confronted with, uh, regardless of whether there was international opposition. It should be said that something like Gachacha was also instituted in the face of major opposition from many Rwandan lawyers. Uh, and this is something that comes up in my own research, was in the late 1990s, uh, early 2000s, some of the most vociferous critics of the use of Gachacha for genocide crimes, in fact, were uh, members of the Rwandan legal community who were steeped in a very, I would say, orthodox conventional understanding of the law and how it should be applied. And they were appalled by the idea that this new creative community-based institution, namely Gachacha, would be used for, for genocide cases. So that, I think, is something important to take out of the Rwandan experience. It's a message beyond Rwanda that we shouldn't just think about post-atrocity justice in very narrow terms. It's not only about courtrooms. It's not only about prisons. But there are many other possibilities that can be pursued. And I think we live in an era where transitional justice and reconciliation are being conceived of in increasingly narrow terms. We're being told it has to look like this. Uh, it has to look like the International Criminal Court. Um, you, you can't use amnesties any longer. That's prohibited according to much international thinking. The, the options are becoming fewer by the year. States recovering from atrocity, I think, find themselves hemmed into this international orthodoxy about what they're supposed to do. In that regard, I think the Rwandan experience is inspirational. It says, look to your own context, look to your own needs, uh, look to your own challenges and find the solution that works best for your society and, and you should ignore the critics in, in that pursuit. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. We'll come back to a number of those points, um, but it strikes me, drawing off of what, what Alice said, is that in the news, we often hear about the International Criminal Court or International Criminal Tribunes, and many people think about justice in that regard. Um, and it's much harder to understand, I think, unless you've lived or accompanied it, that the, the effects of violence are still being felt by individuals and communities. And that space to debate and discuss what does justice look like for a particular context is incredibly difficult um, and, and I think maybe underestimated in terms of the time, the energy, the courage, um, and the effort that's actually needed to go there. Felix, let, let me turn to you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, difficult, of course, to, to, to chip in here after a very eloquent uh, statement by uh, Phil and, uh, and, and Alice. Uh, thank you again. 
like everybody said, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, discussing with you. Now, talking about really the climate lesson, I guess if I was to put it in one line, really, which very much joins what Phil just said, it would be Rwanda's mobilization of pre-colonial past in trying to break away with the colonial legacy. Probably that would be, to me, the key line from which I would build. Uh, I mean, Gachacha is the most known mechanism, but anyone studying Rwanda today knows that there is now quite very many other processes, mechanisms, often called homegrown solutions or processes or programs that are reinvented, if you will, to, to try to deal with specific issues around justice, reconciliation, and uh, even socioeconomic kind of sphere. So we talk about Gachacha, but also we talk about Abunzi, we talk about Imihigo, we talk about Ubudehe, and I'm sure we'll be coming back to some of those. But really what stands out is precisely this Rwanda's uh, idea of looking outside the box, out, outside the general prescription within the field of transitional justice in looking to responses to a massive, massive uh, destructive legacy that the country had. Uh, there are many, of course, uh, ways of looking at all of those in a very much more open and critical way. But that being said, Rwanda's determination to go there, if you will, where there were very few examples to look upon is pretty much striking. And that, to me, also explains, as we probably will be discussing in the next phases, uh, the daily forms of renegotiation of the lived together uh, within, on Rwandan hills. Uh, our personal experience, of course, going on those hills, uh, training gachacha judges in, in, in the early 2000s, uh, and I can, many would say that the society is not perfect, but when you look at the society then and now, definitely you, you, you look at quite how society evolves over time. Back to you, maybe. Uh, I, I, I will probably stop there and probably pick on some of those later. Thanks, Felix. I think this, this notion of a daily form of negotiating how we live together is something that so many of us have the privilege to take for granted. Um, and in fact, that's um, coming out of violence, uh, surviving through violence, adds a degree of complexity to that. Um, and let's, we'll, we'll come back to that. Mike. Yeah, and maybe just to pick up on that and to underscore one of the reflections that Professor Alice made. In so many of the places around the world, I work with Search for Common Ground. We work, have about 60 offices around the world, and we've been engaged in Rwanda um, for about 15 years, so about half of the post-genocide uh, period. And what's been so striking about the process, the processes in Rwanda, has also been the degree to which justice, reconciliation, at one level is a political process. It's about laws, it's about penalties, it's about the apparatus of state and the institutions that, that come with and surround the apparatus of state. And at the other level, it's a, a deeply personal process. And the degree to which the Rwandan society, not only the Rwandan state, but the Rwandan society have embraced a top-down and bottom-up uh, approach. The experience of suffering uh, is a legal one. It, it is one where there's accountability and is one where uh, the state, uh, has a, a, as all states do, has a particular role of, of ensuring justice in society. And at the same time, in a society as, deeply pop, uh, as uh, densely populated as Rwanda, and where the experience of violence is so intimate uh, between neighbors, uh, between local leaders and, and, and individuals, uh, that process of renegotiating, is, uh, as Felix said, is, is vital. 
and, and also one that requires sacrifices from every individual in terms of how they re-engage in, uh, in social relationships with uh, perpetrators or, or um, with, with perpetrators. And so that uh, top-down and bottom-up approach, I think, really marked uh, the, the success, the relative success that Rwanda has seen up to, to today, and is often lacking. And as we look in other parts of the world, sometimes we see relatively robust reconciliation processes, and yet without the formal commitment to justice, to accountability, or the backing of the state in a way that helps the society move forward. In other places, we see relatively robust justice and accountability mechanisms that are poorly accepted, poorly understood, happen in the courtroom or, or in, uh, in a, a private state, place of state, and yet are barely known, let alone supported, um, by the vast majority of people who experienced uh, the violence of the crimes being, uh, being accounted. And so I think the, that top-down and bottom-up approach is something that really Rwandan, uh, all of society, uh, has embraced and reflected and is one of the, the lessons um, that the process of justice and reconciliation uh, goes everything from sort of the highest levels of state down to the ordinary uh, uh, farmer who needs to renegotiate her relationship uh, with a neighbor a accused or who had committed horrendous uh, crimes against her. And, and that people's reconciliation alongside a political reconciliation, a people's justice and a, and a political justice is one of the blends. And, and I think, um, you know, like uh, Professor Phil said, uh, it's not necessarily one of the successes in, that Rwanda has known, a relative success Rwanda has known, is that it hasn't been a one-size-fits-all, that there was a, a bucking of sort of the, some of the international norms and conventions, that it was something that was crafted at a particular moment of time by Rwandan society, for Rwandan society. Um, and, and in that sense, it's actually, I think, relatively, it, it's not, it, it is also not a model that can be cookie-cutter copied in the same way as it was copied from nowhere. It can't be copied. Um, as a template, and, and we've seen efforts that have tried. Um, but there are a number of key lessons. I think the, the first and foremost is the, the, the linking of the people and the politics, the people and the power um, in a justice and reconciliation process is a great, great starting place. Um, I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about the Gachacha courts. Um, and um, Phil, Felix, Alex, I know you've been deeply involved in both studying those, um, attending several of the court sessions, um, and reflecting on them in the context of broader international law, justice and reconciliation, and, and Rwanda's own journey there. Um, and so I'm I'm wondering if you could um, maybe kick us off, Phil, um, and, and share a little bit with people who are le less familiar with what are the Gachacha courts, um, and what do you think stands out from that experience building on, on your initial remarks? So Gachacha really was this uh, revolutionary system of t about 12,000 community-based courts that ran between 2002 and 2012. They prosecuted uh, hundreds of thousands of genocide cases in these very open air hearings uh, with judges who were elected by the local community. And those judges couldn't have previously been a professional judge or lawyer. So it was very much a, a process done without lawyers. Um, it was punitive in the sense that um, these were prosecutions. People were charged with genocide crimes. Um, those cases were then tested. Evidence was gathered from the local community. And if people were found guilty, um, in most cases, they didn't get sent back to prison. Uh, in most cases, they did uh, a, a certain period of community service. So 
it was a very involving process. Local community members would turn up to these hearings at least once a week, um, debating a, a single genocide case for an entire day and then sometimes come back the next week and, and, and continue to do so. It was a very taxing process um, for local people in, in that sense, but did manage to deal with this enormous caseload of, um, of, of genocide charges over that decade that the courts ran in. And um, along with Felix and Alice, um, you know, I, I followed the process all the way through, um, researching in a, in a range of communities um, around the country. Felix and Alice were even more directly involved with training judges. And uh, I, would, I, would, uh, I would say that they were much more directly participating in the process as opposed to myself, who was, who was really only observing it. Um, if I was to pick out one sort of important feature of Gachacha that, that I really think is important for a Rwandan society, but that in my research has resonated far beyond. I also work in places like Uganda, Burundi and Congo, and there's a, an element of Gachacha that I think is resonant in the places that I conduct research there. It's that Gachacha put an emphasis on every single genocide suspect regardless of how supposedly senior or important they were. And this was a real divergence from how criminal justice was typically talked about in most parts of the world. You know, in, in the aftermath of mass atrocity, the typical view is that you hold these trials for a handful of elite perpetrators or at least elite suspects, military and political leaders. And then it almost, in many places, doesn't matter what you do with everybody else. Maybe you give them a formal amnesty, but in many parts of the world, you don't even do that. You just kind of ignore the, the so-called low-level actors. Now, in a context like Rwanda, that option wasn't available because at the end of the day, the vast majority of genocide perpetrators were going to go home and live next to genocide survivors on the hills. And so if there hadn't been some kind of reckoning with the crimes that those everyday people had been involved in, there was a real danger of a bloodbath. And so Rwanda's decision through Gachacha was to put a spotlight on the role of your lowest level peasant farmer who had been involved in genocide crimes. And that was really revolutionary in international thinking and international practice. But I think that it was essential. And I think it's a big part of the reason why Rwanda hasn't gone back to mass violence. Why, if you go to the hills today, you find perpetrators and survivors continuing to live in incredibly close proximity. And that experience maps on to places like northern Uganda, eastern Congo, many parts of Burundi and other parts of the world, where you've had mass violence that has been perpetrated by large numbers of everyday citizens. I think the big thing to take out of Gachacha is this idea that there does have to be some kind of acknowledgement of the crimes committed by those lower level actors. If there is an interest in more harmonious relations in the future, you can't just ignore those crimes. You, you can't pretend that they didn't happen. You can argue about what acknowledgement looks like. And I think Mike makes an important point that that is going to look different in different places, that this is certainly not an argument that the Gachacha model should be adopted wholesale. It's simply to say that we have underestimated the importance of each individual everyday perpetrator. There needs to be acknowledgement, there needs to be reckoning, but the exact modalities of that are something that need to be debated in, in each individual context. So there are many other things we could talk about in relation to Kachacha, but for me, that's the one that I would like to put a spotlight on, the, the importance of those that we used to think of as, as low-level suspects. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Phil. I think, that's, I think that's a really interesting and important point, and then it strikes me that as 
as countries and communities debate that question of what is the modality, there are, um, there are moral and value questions, there are cultural questions, there are practical questions, and figuring out how to weight and calibrate all of those different dynamics is really a, a very difficult conversation to undertake. Um, Alice, I, I want to turn to you. I know you, you've written your, your PhD dissertation on Katacha courts. You were involved directly, and, and wonder what, what you would draw forward for, for us and, and those who are joining us today. Alice, you're on mute. Before that, uh, let's, let me just uh, uh, come back to two points made. Uh, uh, one of the things that struck me, and uh, I'm saying that not only as a Rwandan, uh, 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 but I'm saying that as uh, uh, not only also as somebody who has studied Gachacha, but uh, as some, somebody who has a background in law and uh, who has been taught to respect uh, international law as a response to uh, uh, um, genocide and related crimes, uh, as well as uh, somebody who has been doing some work with the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. I'll come back to that later. But uh, uh, what struck me is how what we study, what we know theoretically, needs a lot of adjustment when it comes to real cases. Uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't appear as something uh, uh, obvious, but most uh, uh, of the advocacy and scholarship that has been developed uh, in response to genocide builds a lot on uh, uh, the Shoah, past crimes, mass crimes, uh, uh, state crimes. But what I think most of the debaters, practitioners, scholars have been missed out. We were in the face of what some scholars have called popularly perpetrated genocide. So it wasn't just genocide as a state crime, and it has clearly aspect of a state crime, but that intimacy called for responses that have never been there. The intensity of popular perpetrated violence called necessarily for uh, uh, imagination and innovation, and those are trials and errors. So this, this, this one I learned not to uh, um, assume what will work, when it will work, and for whom it will work. Uh, uh, Phil alluded to uh, some, um, some processes that took place uh, uh, back in the 90s, uh, how even the, the newly formed Rwandan legal bar uh, opposed uh, 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 the, the, the Gachacha in the beginning. And understandably so, the, the, it is only in 1998 that a bar association uh, uh, was born in Rwanda. So now the, we needed something that uh, 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 could give them, you know, the ability of uh, uh, um, uh, working. But then uh, the process that took place that is not very much known 
uh, then has been also to leave the meeting where discussions about uh, uh, um, reconstructing Gachacha at the leadership level was taking place to meet the, 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 uh, the, including the population and public opinion. I remember always that uh, two Sundays of uh, uh, TV programs, TV uh, um, and, um, and radio programs that took place in 98 and 99 about Kubaza So the population was engaged directly to give an opinion on that, and interestingly so, their opinion and their position vis-a-vis -vis of the Chacha, compared to the Bar Association and uh, uh, the majority of lawyers, uh, practicing lawyers at the time, because I wasn't of that opinion, uh, was different. So uh, um, uh, the, the process through which we conceive justice and reconciliation has been of paramount importance because acceptability, although we are, we are speaking about really a reconstructed mechanism. So nobody doesn't know how practically it will work. But psychologically, the fact that a good part of the population was in favor of a process that they understand and that will take place where they have suffered and continue to live was important. So uh, we can discuss about uh, uh, all we said before, but the process through which the mechanism become known and accepted is one thing that I believe has stood out when it comes to Gachacha. Lastly, uh, and uh, Mr. Jobbins alluded to that, most of the time, I read and I hear about processes that tend to emphasize either at the grassroots level or at the top level. What Gachacha does and what Gachacha is, is a marriage between that bottom-up and uh, 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 top-down level. And one without the other would not work, in my view. But most importantly, there was a sandwich effect. Because in between, there was memory of things people have known and, and have done. And that's where the homegrown, uh, finding in one society what they know and what they have done and built to th from that. Because uh, as uh, my colleagues say, uh, we, we don't necessarily uh, uh, believe that those uh, 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 processes are transferable. But some of the parameters, like how society and states meet together and base the effort to what society understand, the society that is targeted, I understand is something very important. I'll stop here. I think uh, we'll have questions, but I uh, uh, wanted to, to, to flag out those two aspects. Thanks, Alice. I, I think it's easy for us to imagine justice as something that is done by a court or by a law that for many people is something that is quite untangible. And at the same time, we know that if 
communities have to move beyond violence, that those who are most impacted by violence need to have a voice in determining what that looks like. And I think this, it's very difficult to hold two different approaches simultaneously and to harmonize those. And I, I think we see that sort of wrestling in, in other countries. Um, Felix, I want to change gears just a little bit because I know you and Phil have been involved in founding um, the Genocide Research Hub, which, which works to build a knowledge society around uh, genocide prevention and peace building policy and practice in Rwanda. Uh, and today we have the benefit of hearing from, from people who have led the research, um, but I don't know that in every context we have Rwandan nationals or those who are actually doing the deep work, the practice, the reflection, um, having the space to step outside and lead the research, um, the literature, and the documentation that I think is, is so important. So I'm wondering if you could, Felix, talk a little bit about the, the Genocide Research Hub. Um, feel free to, to weave in your thoughts on Gachacha courts as well. I don't want to, to cut you off from that. Fantastic. Uh, Probably, actually, I will start with a lot and uh, mindful of the time still uh, diving into that since I was framing a kind of a, my thoughts around indeed, the, the gachacha. And I wanted to do it through some kind of storytelling. Again, I'm mindful of the time. I was a law student in, by the end of the 90s, in 98, and the 2000s, when the whole debates around gachacha were being framed. Many of, my, many of my law professors were international scholars, so Belgians and Canadians, like, uh, like Shabbos and among many others. So the teaching of law at the time couldn't have contrasted with, with what came to be Gachacha. So we were being taught very classical laws that were part of Rwandan inherited, of course, uh, legal system of Belgian, uh, let's say, legacy. And it was very much evolving parallel to whatever discussions were happening in Gachata. We came to learn about Gachata only when the law was adopted and when we, as a finishing law student, we were mobilized to go and train, to be trained, first of all, and then to go and train the very first batch of Gachata judges in the hills. We had, that was the first time I went in the, one of the more remotest places in, uh, in Rwanda. And the experiences we gained there probably were the best training probably that I had more than my law school and I'm not being uh, romantic here. And that was very important because then looking back, what came to be gachacha in practice and what came to be this path to, towards, uh, let's say, reconstruction through justice and many other processes was very much part of those initial steps that we saw, we couldn't analyze at the time, but we can have the luxury of looking back and, to, and fit into what we do. Now, at the time we were doing those things, uh, there were very few Rwandan scholars who had time to go and write books on this. Uh, generally, when you look at the literature on Rwanda, on Gachacha, on many other things, at least in international platforms, international publishers, international journals, you'll always find quite a lot of familiar names now. Phil, of course, is one of those. But uh, quite many others uh, who will, with names more or less sounding like Phil Clark than, uh, let's say, Alice Karikezi. Uh, so there, were, there have been, until very recently, very few Rwandan scholars who are very present in what we call Rwanda studies or scholarship on Rwanda, to the extent that much of the debate we end up having in Amsterdam, Brussels, and so on, tend to be pretty much dictated by that scholarship in which Rwandan have, Rwandans have had quite a very limited stake. Now, 
that was the drive behind uh, establishing within the Aegis Trust uh, through a very wonderful uh, visionary work of Phil Clark, who I hadn't joined yet, uh, of establishing a research program which would support uh, Rwandan researchers, conduct research, produce papers through some kind of mentorship program, and then publish in ideally international platforms where they're to, to give more visibility to their scholarship. So that program started around 2014-15, and uh, through and it was very interesting to see how very, how much demand there was for, for for such a program. So in quite a number of applications, we had four rounds. We had more than 400 plus applications of, of Rwandans who wanted to conduct research on different topics around the, the, the broad field of peace building, but looking at all the areas of reconstruction in, in post-genocide Rwanda. Now, the topics were proposed by Rwandan researchers who were submitting their proposals. We picked those we, we found to be quite innovative and uh, speaking to some of the issues. But very importantly, one of the striking things was that how quite a number of those papers really didn't go necessarily along the line of what are supposed to be the issues around studying Rwanda at the time within international scholarship. So for us, that was a very important point. So through this program, we managed, of course, to really give a centered voice to those researchers. We didn't dictate what the research or the topic the research was really their research. Ours was only a job of accompanying them. And the program has been an amazing blend of really both supporting local scholarship, giving them a voice, but also, most importantly, allowing them really to also very much feed onto, but also into local policies and policy making, so that they are able to go on dialogue with relevant uh, institutions where the scholarship is needed. So that was the background to, establish, to establishing this program, it's still running at different levels, and we have quite built a very strong network of scholars. Uh, there's quite a lot of demand for such a program. I'm sure probably you saw the piece we wrote about uh, why that was needed. I mean, we wrote actually two, one in the conversation, another some time ago in the, in the British, uh, British Academy platform. And part of, for example, of one of the wonderful achievements we had, and probably I will leave it to feel as well to feed in, it was that at a given time, we were able to bring all of those a number of scholars who had completed the, 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 their research project, we were able to bring them to London Atkins uh, at a conference where they were the main presenters. And that was the new, in, 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 in at least Rwanda scholarship that I have been private to, where you have Southern researchers coming to the Global North to be the main presenters with Rwanda researchers from abroad being only, let's say, discussions and so on. So that was uh, the, the background behind the program. That's the work we have been doing, and that we pretty much, with determination, continue to do. Back to you. Thanks, Felix. Um, I can commend to all of those watching today to, to check out Genocide Research Hub online. The, the resources and the papers there, I think, are really exceptional. Uh, and, and I think they draw forward these specific reflections on Rwanda, but also many of the things we're talking about today that, that can spark imagination in, in other contexts. Phil, I, want, I wonder, did you want to add anything on this before we move to the next set of conversation? I mean, just one thing, I guess, Susan, which was, I mean, the, the reason that we set up this program um, in Kigali in 2014, the reason we've got the Genocide Research Hub really comes out of this 
real frustration uh, on the part of many Rwandan commentators and Rwandan researchers that their work simply was not getting the platform that it deserved. And when we looked into this much more closely, we started to see the reasons why. There were real systemic biases in the publishing world, but also in the policymaking world, against local researchers. There was an idea that Rwanda was a too closed uh, political environment to conduct robust research, that uh, researchers would lack the necessary rigour and independence uh, to be able to produce high-quality research. And what that meant was their work wasn't getting published in international journals, but they also weren't being commissioned uh, by USAID uh, and by other donors uh, to do all of these very lucrative uh, research consultancies. Uh, the local research community was being really frozen out. And I think one of the things that we're hoping to do through the Genocide Research Hub is to showcase just how much amazing research is being done by Rwandan researchers um, and hoping that that starts to change both the profile but also the content of international debates about Rwanda um, and, and hopefully opening up new opportunities for those local researchers whose voices really have been dampened down for, for far too long. Thanks, Phil. I think that's something that we're, we're all reflecting on and trying to act upon as we think about justice, diversity, inclusion, and I think Genocide Research Hub was ahead of its time in many ways and, and is a really um, wonderful example of, of what is possible and why it matters and how it really contributes to, to our thinking and practice and policies. Um, we're going to spend um, a few more minutes in, in this conversation, but I want to invite those who are following online to submit any questions. Um, we'll bring you into the conversation. For those who are here with us today in, in the building, welcome. Uh, my colleagues have comment um, question cards, uh, and we invite you to write down a question. We'll collect them together and bring it into the conversation with the panelists in the next 10 minutes. Um, but the two, two topics I want to cover a little bit further, um, one relates more to the community peace-building efforts that, that have taken place in Rwanda. And then I want to shift to talk specifically about the impact of violence on women and how um, the justice and reconciliation approaches have been, been shaped uh, around responding to that. Um, so Mike, I wonder if you could, I, th I think for many people, they hear the word reconciliation, they hear the word dialogue, um, but maybe it's a little bit abstract to understand what that actually looks like um, and what it would look like to, to be inspired by what's taken place in, in Rwanda. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you've seen in Search for Common Grounds work um, it, at that community level of, of engagement. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, uh, when we look at the uh, Gachacha process, for example, um, you know, is, is in some senses a, a national program, but also one that enables the particularities of each community uh, and the cases that unfold in each community to come to the fore. And one of the things that we find in every post-conflict society where we work, and that was certainly the case in Rwanda after the genocide, is as much as it, certainly accountability and reconciliation um, it is about what happened and it is about the perpetration of grievous harm, but it's also about giving voice uh, to the victims. And when we talk about, you know, both when Professor Alice was highlighting sort of the role of the media in giving voice and discussing and publicizing, but also forging a social consensus around how a society is going to deal with uh, the, you know, the effects of a past conflict, and in this case, a grievous harm, uh, that social consensus um, is something that can only begin, to some extent, at the national level through media discussions, but also at the, the community level with the people who live in the most intimate relationships not only between victim and perpetrator, but amongst victims themselves. And I think what stands out about the Rwandan example um, of blending uh, that sort of reconciliation and justice process um, 
uh, of rolling out that reconciliation justice process is also the, the scale and the scope of, of the accountability mechanisms that came up through Gachacha, uh, in particularly in, in, in other mechanisms as, as well. And if we look at other societies, we're sitting here in the US, I'm an American, um, and if you look at analogous sort of intimate experiences of violence um, and processes led sort of after an armed conflict in, this case, in, in the Rwandan case, the victorious RPF, but we can look, I think, at an analogous, uh, one of the, the you know, situations is the American sort of reconstruction of the, the 1870s after the grievous crime of slavery. And we see the inability uh, at that particular historic moment uh, to roll out sort of at scale um, both a local as, uh, accountability as well as reconciliation processes had a long tail throughout our history, even up to today. And if we look at the Rwandan experience, there, what, what's really remarkable about that has been uh, the surge, let's say, or the, or the ability to roll out at scale uh, and accountability mechanisms, but also that, that set up a framework for social relations um, to the degree to which perpetrators are held to account um, and that process is dealt with, it lays the foundations for ongoing social relationships. I think when we look to Rwanda, and I think what's, what's really, two things that I think are really interesting in Rwanda today, and I think where all of us in the wider world, in every society, as every society, navigates deep social divisions, navigates its own history of, of, of crime and abuse, uh, whether as, as serious as genocide or slavery or, or more modest divisions. I think. The, the two, two challenges that I think Rwanda is navigating now that all, all of us can, can learn from is one is the generational change and the generational transfer from a, a society where um, everyone had immediate experiences uh, of the genocide in Rwanda. Now, as young people come of age for whom uh, the genocide is an important part of their family as well as their nation's history, and yet not the defining element of their lives if they're a 15-year-old, maybe the legacy is, but how, you know, how histories get, how history gets forged within the schools, but how it also gets integrated into the lives, um, and, and how it gets integrated alongside one among multiple uh, 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 conflict issues that people deal with, you know, land issues, social issues, gender issues, all of the issues that, that, that are present in every society, including Rwandan. And so how that transition gets made from sort of one generation to another and from a moment when uh, Rwandan public life was quite, you know, was, was profoundly marked by the genocide to the post, you know, to a, a new era where it will remain part of the country's history and yet, you know, there's a new sets of issues and new sets of challenges and so we've been partnering, for example, with the Abunzi on land mediation, on, on other uh, sets of, and building mediation structures, dispute resolution structures in a way that's sort of a, a next generation, let's say, uh, not in the next generation, because, but a, a next uh, set of issues. And, and, and maybe the final thing that I just marked from Rwanda's experience has been the investment that, um, uh, 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 that Felix alluded to in research and evaluation. Um, and the National Unity and Reconciliation Commission in Rwanda invested a lot, a number of state institutions as well as the academic institutions uh, invested a lot in finding out what works. Uh, not only, we, we talk about some of the more successful programs, there are also programs that were not succeeding, that were shut down, or areas where the, the leadership identified that the gachacha process or other processes weren't achieving the desired results and there was a need to reinforce that. And the degree to which both the, the state and its leadership, the society, its international partners were able to sort of study, research, learn, adapt over the years 
um, develop new programs, close old programs, um, I think is also something that, that should be celebrated and, um, and acknowledged for all of the successes. Also, the degree to which uh, the research process gave a chance to also correct, you know, course correct over the course of the, uh, over, over the, course of the 30 years um, that have gone by. Thanks, Mike. And it strikes me that sometimes when we talk about justice and reconciliation, we also have in our minds that there's a date that it starts uh, after violence ends or maybe while violence is ongoing. I think that's an important debate. And then there's a date when it ends, when it's finished. Um, and I think what's, what's really clear in our conversation is that these, these are processes that continue certainly over three decades and carry forward as a thread. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a question out there, maybe not to be answered right now, but we've we know that people have so many complex sets of identities um, from their, their own experiences and where they situate in their communities and their countries. And we've used the words today perpetrators, we've used the word victims, we've used the word survivor. And I would um, love to draw out maybe in the question and answer, what, what are the words that people use today in Rwanda and how does that impact on the sense of living together, or how has it been shaped by, by the conversation on justice and re reconciliation? Sometimes we're a bit lazy. We use the words that we think we know, um, but I think these words, these words really matter. Um, I can see people are writing their, their questions, which is great. I encourage you to pass them to um, the end of your row, and my colleagues will collect them, and we'll start to, to bring them into the conversation. But before, before we go there, um, I wanted to talk a, a bit about um, the pattern of violence um, that was experienced in Rwanda um, in terms of sexual and gender-based violence, including rape as a very deliberate strategy um, in, in the genocide and genocide crimes. Um, Rwanda is certainly not unique uh, in this regard. There are similar patterns that were documented in the Balkan Wars and to can continue to be documented today um, by the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, the Independent Human Rights Commissions, advocacy organizations from Ethiopia to South Sudan to Ukraine. Um, Alice, you've been a, a leading voice in this, um, both in your, your profession, in your advocacy work, and then carrying into your work with the International Criminal Tribunal. And, and I'm wondering if you could say um, a little bit about how you've seen that evolution of, of understanding of the impact of violence on women and how, how that shaped um, justice and reconciliation um, over the last three decades. Let me uh, have a new to myself now. Yes, thank you very much for that question. Um, and, and it's very uh, important to look back because this is something that uh, has really, as you say, evolved. Um, I'm going to give uh, um, an example so that uh, we are very concrete on that one. If you look at the first version of the 1996 genocide law in Rwanda, the very first version that categorized level of gravity of crimes hold, held uh, 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 what they call sexual violence in fourth category and at the same level of crimes of property. But if you go and look the version that has been eventually used, that is an amendment of that level, 
that uh, first version, you realize that what they call sexual torture moves from category four to go to category one, meaning the most serious crime. And that is something that happened in 96. After the law was completed and published, what happened is groups of women's organizations invited MPs at the time to go to visit women who have survived that sexual violence in a particular place in Taba, where uh, uh, Akayesu uh, Jean-Paul, uh, who was first, the first convict uh, 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 by the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda in that respect, came from and was a mayor. So they went for hearings at the invitations of women organizations, including women members of parliament, to listen to the ladies, the women, the girls, who have been through that experience and make up their mind. As a result, the law changed in 1996. So that was one step in the change. In 1997, at the occasion of the celebration of the International Women's Day, the guest of honor at that event was not exactly an advocate of women's rights and was not taking that seriously, those crimes. In 1998, we made sure it was corrected by involving ourselves in the construction of the speech. And that became another important moment of that evolution. To take you back, what is not known to the greatest public, including the scholarship, the first case in the context of the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda, when it comes to sexual violence, has been ruled by Rwandan courts. And the person who has been convicted was also a local leader, a government local leaders, leader, Egid Gatanazi. At the time, Rwanda was still practicing death penalty. And in April, 1998, he was executed for gender-based crime. That was many months before the decision in September 1998 of Jean-Paul And the momentum has been so important that it became when some leaders, some top leaders voiced, men and women, by the way, voiced 
their support to the promotion of women's rights and the visibilization, if I may say, of gender-based violence in the context of genocide, this kicked out, kicked out more than just addressing gender-based crimes, but also trying to push at the maximum for the promotion of women's rights. For memory, for those who don't know, in 1999 happened the revision of the inheritance law for the first time. And that became like a string that led us to 2000, uh, uh, 1999 with the first uh, mobilization of women to run for office in local uh, uh, structures. Uh, 2001, to mobilize women to become gachacha judges by women's organization, and so forth. So I'm not going to be so detailed, but I wanted to give practical uh, uh, things. But sometimes we speak about, uh, uh, we, we think things have just happened. And also the language of uh, theory and uh, conceptualization sometimes impoverished experiences. I believe that in uh, a place like this one, where we want to, uh, uh, to see how it has happened, Daily. So uh, I always say that I, I've, I've had the privilege to uh, advocate for things that have happened, have been, uh, 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 um, have yielded success while still alive. And I, I believe it's really a privilege. But it was a push. It was a lot of effort in advocacy. I remember by then, uh, 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 I, I would sleep in my office, you know, <laughs> to, to write papers, to, to, to go and see people, to, you know, to work with colleagues who uh, operate from different time zones, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I, I would not want to abuse that uh, the time uh, because I know people want to have a Q&A. But that's, uh, uh, that has been like a push, an effort of many agencies uh, brought together. Again, uh, women uh, 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 organizations worked with uh, independent people like me, uh, independent advocates, uh, government, to come together to really give it a name. Because we had to convince uh, the, 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 the governments to make decisions. We have to convince legislators to be on our side. And it was a daily work and the efforts of different actors coming together. Thanks, Alice. Um, listening to you talk, I go back to my, my previous curiosity about terminology. And it, it strikes me that um, women who were impacted by, by violence went maybe from being victims to survivors to champions and leaders. Right, there's a full transformation beyond that. And I think, I think that's uh, an amazing story um, to, to show what is possible. Um, and uh, I think that's incredibly powerful. It, it also struck me as you were talking that um, for some people, it's very hard to imagine the impact and the severity of gender-based violence. 
Um, but I've, I've seen in other circumstances that when, when those who are survivors um, take the courageous step to tell the story, that people very quickly are convinced about why this is such a serious crime and why it has to be addressed, addressed accordingly. Um, and I think that goes back to sparking imagination about not just the future of peace, but really the deep personal impacts and community impacts of violence. So thank you, thank you for sharing that. And I think you've inspired some of our students in the room today about how late they may have to stay up in their research. Alice, please come. Yeah. Yes, please. Just quickly, one thing that I believe was of very uh, 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 of tremendous importance in the process. I, I remember at the time when the the, the international crime we were doing campaign, something came out uh, because I was working very uh, uh, closely with organizations and universities in North America, including uh, Montreal and uh, and New York and, uh, and uh, California. So uh, there, there were rumors, or whatever they were, uh, that uh, this is really an agenda that didn't concern Rwandan women as such, but was uh, uh, the fruit of the work of uh, international organizations as well as uh, westernized lawyer. That was uh, particularly referred to me. And what I did then, uh, uh, had the chance of uh, 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 knowing about the 16 days of activism uh, uh, um, against gender-based violence. What I did, I operated the first one in Rwanda in 1997. And up to now, again, uh, about perspective, that mechanism for raising awareness about gender-based violence has been appropriated by the government. And every year, the Ministry of Gender now operate 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. So this is uh, uh, this has been, and I remember we we did among other things. Um, uh, 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 a walk between uh, within Kigali, and after that we went to Taba. We were, we walked from uh, Kamoni to Taba. I remember seeing staff of the International Tribunal Criminal for Rwanda. By then, I could see them in the streets, seeing those who have been targeted by this violence coming to march with us. And that's even for myself, was uh, an, a very humbling experience when some of them came and they say, you know, you didn't plan for us to take part of in this uh, march, but we want to come with you. And I start organizing for that. I start uh, including, start uh, looking for uh, security measures that could, uh, 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 could spare them for uh, difficult uh, things, you know, potentially. So uh, um, to tell you again uh, about perspective, what can have happened uh, from 97 when we had this first edition of 16 Days of Activism. And today, even today, every year in March now, you'll have uh, 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 that uh, mechanism working, not now from uh, civil society necessarily, but from government. Thank you.
uh, it's really powerful, and I hope I can invite, we can invite you back to have a conversation in, in more depth about um, women's leadership in, in this justice and reconciliation pathway, and, and also the, the active role in social and political life at the end of the day. Um, we have a number of really excellent questions, and we have about 10 minutes that's left. So um, if, if our panelists will permit, what I'd like to do is read out three or four that I think uh, speak to some of the broad themes. My apologies if we don't get to your question, um, but I hope we can continue the conversation. And then we'll do one round. I'll invite our panelists to comment on whatever question um, stands out for them or to comment briefly on each of them. Um, so the, the first question, um, I think, really relates to imagining what does forgiveness look like? Um, and, and the question is, how are the communities who are devastated um, during genocide able to forgive perpetrators? Um, a second question, uh, I think, starts to look a little bit forward. So with a, a new generation of Rwandans growing further and further away from the specific experienced memory of the genocide, do you, do you think that, that the spirit and the motivation that developed still impacts Rwandans today, and how strongly. Um, a third question uh, that I think uh, looks maybe even further forward or, or another direction is that the panel has outlined what are, what are really excellent discussions about what to do after a genocide. Um, do, do the panelists have any thoughts um, on how nations can prevent violence and genocide from happening? These are, these are each in and of themselves their own, their own events, so I would ask that you, you share um, maybe a, a nugget of, of wisdom and thought, and uh, we'd, we'd be delighted to host a further conversation. Um, I'm gonna turn to Felix uh, first uh, to, to get his thoughts on, on any of these closing questions, and, and any, any concluding remarks, Felix, that you'd like to add. Uh, Fantastic. Thank you very much for, for, for these uh, quite indeed insightful and broad questions that are not very easy to answer in, in few kind of sound bits. Uh, forgiving perpetrators, I guess it's a, it's a very complicated, long process that can never, is never linear and probably is never similar in two persons. Uh, I have talked to many genocide survivors uh, who recount their uh, journey in that direction. And they tell of different experiences. Some do it really from a personal felt need to liberate oneself of anger, of hate, in order to move forward. Others really do through kind of, for some kind of religious sense of rebuilding a broken brotherhood relation, if you will, or sisterhood. And others tend to do it based on the broader shared kind of felt imperatives of rebuilding society based on some, to reflect the, the, the various governmental programs. So there are different processes, different motivations. It's really a journey that is never similar in two person, and so not that very much linear. Um, and it's, that's why it's also important when reflecting on those experiences of individual survivors, and you are talking about terminologies. In Rwanda, we have really these beautiful words like uh, a survivor is literally it translates something like someone who escaped death by the spear. But that idea of escaping is quite very important and living on and so on. Um, 
Second, the spirit of uh, what drives one uh, that, 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 that this whole horrendous experience to do. Uh, one of the pieces I wrote not, uh, on the 25th uh, commemoration in, in the Spectator here in the Netherlands was uh, sadly entitled uh, Living in the Shadow of the Past. Uh, in, 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 if you look, you analyze Rwanda, I tend to insist on Rwanda's agency, both at the governmental level, but also at individual Rwandan actors. The, the insistence, of, uh, insistence on Rwandan agency in driving various agendas of the reconstruction process, even within a context of dependence on international you know, means, if you will, especially resources, that is striking to me, it has always been striking. Because from the very early on, years of reconstruction process, the government, but also increasingly society as well, insisted on sitting in the driver's agenda. Oh, we have a, a break here? No, we hear you. Oh, okay, you're sorry. Good. You're good. Uh, so we'll, we'll get the, you to wrap up, though, your final, final remarks so we make sure that we bring, have time to bring in Mike and Alice. Exactly. So I'm, 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 I'm concluding. So the government really tried to drive the agenda, even if it relied on international means. Um, to me, that is key. So they, 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 they also in intervention. Today we talk a lot about you know decolonizing knowledge, ethical collaboration, ethical interventions, and so on. Uh, but increasingly, that's where we come back to the, the, the importance of centering local agency in this kind of reconstruction process. You may well, international solidarity is absolutely key in post-conflict societies. People need external intervention. People need external means to rebuild their societies at different level in different sectors. But anytime that local agency is not empowered to take on, I guess even the reconstruction, which was spelt in the third question about prevention, it might be futile because when I look, for example, uh, my studies are in, 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 on Rwanda and Congo, when I look at many interventions in neighboring Congo, for example, where international agency tends to take a central stage most of the time, I'm very much discouraged and I tend to make always a contrast between Rwanda and, and, and Congo in that regard. I doubt whether you can build lasting peace when international agency remained centered rather than progressively giving way to the local agency and empowering it to be more impactful. Back to you. Thanks, Felix. Mike, uh, final thoughts in, yeah. in two minutes. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Well, first, I think on the question of what forgiveness looks like, I'd be remiss if I didn't plug the uh, uh, Seven Foundation and the wonderful exhibit you guys are hosting. Uh, around the world, we see war imagery is very easy in the public and as well as the political imagination to see what happened, to, to imagine what happens in wars or how things can, can unfold in, in conflict. And yet, so little done to help uh, imagine and demonstrate what peace looks like, what forgiveness looks like, what recovery looks like. And panels like this one, but also exhibits like the kind that USIP and, and Seven are putting together, is a great way to visualize that and bring that home to, to so many of us who are far from this. I think on the question of genocide prevention and, and atrocities prevention, so genocide and, and related um, uh, crimes, I think I would just highlight the role of the international community. And since we're here in Washington, um, the, the role that the US could be playing and, and could be doing much more of. Um, you always need to build the muscle before it, you plan to use it. And right now, we're in a situation where, uh, although with the Eli Wiesel Act, the U.S. has made new, and Congress has mandated new capacities for the U.S. government, there's more that could be done to invest in the complex crises fund, some of the quick funds that can be mobilized for the next genocide to head off the worst in the context of an atrocity, to train State Department 
uh, and other officers around the world. But especially in one area where we haven't necessarily seen as much investment is cultivating partnerships. We talked about, and I think it's, I completely agree, the value of investing in local knowledge and local agency of the societies most affected, um, as well as investing in knowledge and, and knowledge sharing with the international uh, uh, societies and predominantly in the West. But as we look at other uh, power centers in, in Asia, in the Middle East, the degree to which awareness and the degree to which those other uh, societies are also aware of, educated, developing their own capacities to be able to positively uh, engage and address uh, uh, atrocities so that for the next time uh, there is a genocide, that there are mass uh, atrocities, and, and we actually can look at a, a couple of places around the world, uh, where we could see a much more robust international mobilization to avoid the kinds of tragedies that we saw in, in Rwanda. And so that ally building alongside properly resourcing the atrocities prevention architecture here in the US is one step that I think all of us uh, here in the States as well as our elected leaders uh, uh, could take uh, to make sure that we, we realize the sort of the never again uh, uh, vision. That really um, practical set of thoughts and bringing it back to, to Washington um, where, where, where we all sit. Alice, um, last word, word over to you in the last uh, two minutes of our program today. Um, thank you. Uh, I think I adhere to uh, everything my colleagues have uh, said before me. Uh, uh, we have to be patient with justice and reconciliation uh, and forgiveness happens like justice and reconciliation at different levels. Uh, you have to uh, provide a vision that's uh, uh, still ambition to live together even after mass atrocities, which does not rule out uh, uh, justice in, different, uh, in its different aspects. And you have to allow yourself to make errors, you might, have, you might have setback with forgiveness sometimes, but uh, if the vision uh, leads to ambitiously living together again in the best condition and searching for common grounds, to paraphrase the, the, the organization, uh, you'll get there. One day it works, one day it doesn't work. And sometimes let's refer to our proper uh, our own feelings when we, we, we speak about those uh, things because we're dealing with human beings. Now, when it comes, uh, 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 it comes to prevention, uh, what genocide teaches you, the impact of genocide is that it shatters, it shatters all social fabric, particularly so when it is popularly perpetrated. Now, it means that the effort to reconstruct and prevent have to address those different levels of society. Uh, these include uh, aspects we've been speaking about, but also uh, 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 creating opportunities in a society, creating wealth, creating a future, imagining a future, including by improving the ways people live, offering and working to create more favorable conditions where you have less scarcity of resources, uh, education for all, health, 
uh, health uh, 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 insurance for all, etc., etc. We don't have sufficient time to that, but it has to be holistic. It has to at, uh, attend to the structural as well as the, the immediate aspect of, um, uh, uh, of destruction towards a reconstruction so as to, to create an environment where people want not only to live together, but have prospect for a better life. Alice, uh, Felix, Mike, thank you so much for this really wonderful conversation and for covering such a complex um, issue uh, that has so many different dimensions to it, spans across three decades, um, and looks forward to the future. I think um, what I take away from our conversation is that imagining what justice and reconciliation looks like um, isn't a luxury, it's a necessity that we have to open our minds, uh, be courageous to contemplate uh, approaches that may not have been tried in the past, um, and that the difficult conversations around that uh, shouldn't be a surprise, but they absolutely are necessary. So thank you for, for this really wonderful conversation. Thank you to those who joined us in the building today. Thank you for everybody who joined us online. I invite you, um, again, if you haven't had the opportunity to come and visit the Imagine exhibit at USIP, uh, you can find uh, free tickets online for that. There's also a virtual exhibit. Uh, and so there's an opportunity to take a look at the photos and videos about uh, Rwanda's imagination and the other countries. Thank you very much, everybody. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.